0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms, specifically the 32nd Psalm. I want to bring to you a message that I've called Measuring Man's Sin by the Magnitude of God's Pardon. This seems a fitting place as we rejoiced last week at seeing the Lord's forgiveness of our sins. And seeing that exemplified and talked about through the testimonies of those who were baptized. So I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the ones who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You may be seated. J. Wilbur Chapman, a Methodist evangelist of the 19th century, told of a distinguished minister of Australia and talked about how he preached regularly on sin. One of the church officers came to him after a sermon to talk with him, and he said to the pastor, we do not want you to talk so plainly as you do about sin. If our boys and girls hear you talking so much about sin, they will more easily become sinners. Call it whatever you will, but do not speak so plainly about sin. So the minister arose from his desk, walked to the utility closet, and brought back a small bottle of strychnine, and it was marked rat poison. And then he said, I see what you want me to do. You want me to change the label. Suppose I take off this poison label and I replace it with some milder label, such as essence of peppermint. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. How we speak of sin determines how we engage with it. The more severely we speak of sin, the more severely we are willing to deal with it. And the more casually we speak of sin, the more casually we deal with it. How we speak of sin, then, is also governed by how we measure sin. There are a variety of ways to measure sin. We can measure it by society standards or the cultural's approval. Sin can be measured by our own conscience and even at times our own enjoyment of it. But the Lord measures it differently. God's word measures sin by God's decrees. God himself measures sin by his own holiness. And Christ can measure sin by his own death. Allow me, though, to propose perhaps another measurement for you and I that we should measure man's sin by the magnitude of God's pardon. By looking upon the significance of the forgiveness of God, I think we can better grasp the significance of our sin, or the seriousness of it at least. It is to that aim, then, that we engage with Psalm 32 this morning. Speaking of his own experience, the King David here writes of the devastating consequences of sin, and he highlights especially the awful result of sin that is unconfessed. He does so, though, against the backdrop of God's forgiveness. By the greatness of God's forgiveness, David measures the greatness of his sin. When we measure sin accurately we see the magnitude of God's pardon. And when we measure God's pardon accurately, we see the measure or the magnitude of our sin. (coughs) Psalm 32 measures both. And so I want you to note first this morning, the absolution of sins committed. The absolution of sins committed. A sin committed contaminates one for all of eternity, but a sin forgiven cleanses one for all eternity. Sin is vile and repulsive, and though it is so, the Lord's pardon of that sin is both sufficient and strengthening. It prompts David to write here, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David's biography is preserved for us in scripture to the point that we probably know more about David than we would have if he'd written his own autobiography because what we get here is the Lord's perspective that reveals more about David. As a result, we know that David is well experienced with sin And it spans the range from his own pride and hypocrisy all the way to the point of adultery and murder. Surely this all-knowing, this all-present God is more aware of the severity of David's sin than perhaps David himself. And though God is a record of them all, he absolves a person of their penalty of sin upon their confession of that sin. We know this to be true because the Lord has said so in 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The severity of sin is marked by three different words used in our text in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. He first identifies sin as a transgression. To transgress God's law is to cross over a known boundary and to willfully defy the Lord. Transgression is rebellion. It's much like a child who, when a parent says, do not touch this or do not cross this line, still puts their finger over. I know of a dog who would do the same. So they told the dog not to come into the carpet, and so the dog would lay in the kitchen on the linoleum, but he would put his paw on the carpet. This is an act of defiance. The second word used is sin itself, which we know to mean missing God's mark. But the severity of that sin is better understood when we recognize that it's not just merely missing God's mark. We're missing God's will. And I don't mean that we're missing his will by somebody who may have become a lawyer when God called them to be a doctor This is, again, like a parent instructing a child to tell the truth, and yet the child still chooses to lie instead. The child missed the will of the parent to tell the truth. It's a moral failure. That leaves us with this third term here for sin, and it's found in verse 2, and our text calls it deceit. Some translations may repeat the word sin again, but it's actually a different word. It's not the same sin mentioned in verse 1. This, in this case, is a crooked act with the intent to do harm. And so we have this threefold description of sin, and this threefold description of sin really captures the offensive nature of sin. It should remind us as readers just how horrendous sin is in the eyes of the Lord. It provokes his anger, and not merely because it's immoral or because it's obscene. It provokes his anger because it antagonizes his holiness. It's made more offensive by something you should notice in each of those. Regardless of the sin mentioned, each and every single one was marked by a willful disregard for it. It becomes offensive because despite knowing God's revealed will, the offender voluntarily disregards it. But that severity of sin is offset by the sufficiency of God's forgiveness. Just as there are three words to describe man's sin, then David goes on and he gives a threefold description of God's forgiveness. First, just by saying that sin is forgiven. Such a phrase means to suggest that any of the guilt, any of the sin, and any of the remembrance of that sin has all been removed. That is to say that the weight and the burden that sin carries has been lifted off and has been carried out of sight. No longer is the sinner bound by the shame and burden that comes with it. But then David goes on to say not just that sin is forgiven, he says also that it is covered That means it has been atoned for. That judicial penalty is no longer in effect. Because Proverbs 10.12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. We know that this covering of sin is an expression of the Lord's love. And if this is enough, he adds one more descriptor. In that next verse, to simply say the Lord does not count it, That's a wonderful description of the Lord's disposition towards sin. Having been justified by the work of Christ, God's attitude then is to set aside the eternal consequences of that sin. Exodus 34, when Moses dared to plead with God and and declare of him, please show me your glory. After the Lord did reveal his glory, Moses writes this description that captures both the seriousness of man's sin and the sufficiency of God's forgiveness. And he describes God in this way. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sometimes I think we need to think in Trinitarian terms because to do so elevates the magnitude of something, including here. Much like when the angels declare that the Lord is holy, 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 which signifies that there is nothing or no one holier than God. It would be like saying that that God is holy, God is holier, and God is the holiest. He is the holiest of all. There is nothing more holy. Now, before us in our text is a trinity of terms. First, to describe man's sin, as if to say that man has committed a sin. In fact, man has committed a great sin. And then goes on, as man has committed the greatest sin of all. Actually, that's one area where we probably are more perfect than God. We have perfected the ability to sin. But the greatness of that sin, again, is offset by the greatness of God's forgiveness. And so, in the same way that there is a trinity of terms to describe man's sin, there is a trinity of terms to describe God's absolution. So, what we have is a picture of of sin that, that can't be outdone. There's no greater sin. And yet there's no greater forgiveness. The Lord's forgiveness brings about the Lord's blessing in this text. Twice David calls the forgiven sinner blessed. Having been absolved of all sins, the sinner is blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Quite simply, to be blessed is to have that value added to one's life. And the value added to the sinner's life here is having the weight of that sin lifted relieving the sinner of carrying such a heavy, heavy burden. John Bunyan captures this well in Pilgrim's Progress, where he describes Pilgrim coming to the, the cross. And at that cross, at which point his, it says his burden was loosed from off his shoulders, fell from his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do so, till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in and was seen no more. This is the absolution of sins committed. The forgiveness of the Lord is effective. It's not only relieving the sinner of the sin's burden, but what we see here is it brings about this unspeakable joy. In fact, the blessed of verse 2 is in the plural form. Speaking of a double measure of joy or bundles of joy is what it's conveying. And yet, despite the Lord's mercy imparted through this sufficient forgiveness, the instinctive response is to attempt to hide our s- sins, obscuring it from the visibility of others, and at least trying to obscure it from the visibility of God. Out of that, I want you to note second, the anguish of sins concealed. The anguish of sins concealed. Verses 3 through 5 read, Hidden sin is still sin. Hidden sin is still visible to an all seeing God, even if it's hidden from people. Though one may think their sins are hidden, that sin still comes with consequences. And David exposes the severity of those consequences in verses three through five. The significance of David's words here is he writes from experience. He's not writing as an outsider analyzing someone else's situation. He's not writing as a researcher trying to prove some sort of thesis. David is sharing the circumstances of his own life here. Psalm 32 is one of six penitential psalms that is, psalms that express penitence. And this one directly relates to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is also written by David. And it is written in response to being confronted by Nathan about his sins in 2 Samuel, 12, uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. What we read this morning. We read a part of that situation. We didn't read of the part where David allows his own lust to guide his decisions. We didn't read of the part where it resulted in his adultery and Bathsheba's adultery. And we didn't read that uncontrolled sin knows no boundaries, and that ultimately resulted in David orchestrating the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. But we did read about Nathan's confrontation to David. We're rightly appalled by the horrendous nature of David's sin. But so that we don't get too prideful, we need to remember There is nothing in even the vilest of offenders that's not already in us in that sin nature. And so we take note of David's description here in Psalm 32 because of that. As he explains the fallout of unconfessed (coughs) sin, he describes it for us, verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Sin not only provokes God's anger, it provokes man's anguish. And the description that David gives us here is quite pitiful. It describes someone like an old, out-of-shape man carrying this heavy load upon his shoulders. It causes physical weakness, straining so much that his bones are wasting away, according to the text. But a burden of that magnitude is not just physical, it is also mental. David says it caused groaning all day long. That phrase is an idiom to point to the mental anguish that is associated with it. At this point, not confessing sin seems foolish because it's wreaking more havoc in David's life and in any person's life than the consequences of sin itself. Notice what David says in verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This anguish that David is feeling is the Lord's doing. The anguish of sin concealed is the Lord at work in David's life. He's causing that anguish in order to draw David back to himself. Though it's painful, it is needful. We read about that in Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. It's there that the author of Hebrews writes of discipline, and he writes things like this in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And finally, verse 11. For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so indeed the Lord's discipline has its work in David's life. And it compels David to confess, we see. Notice here the completeness of David's confession in Psalm 32 like he does in in verses one and two to describe man's sin and God's forgiveness, David once again returns to this threefold description, but this time about his confession, and he expresses it in three ways. I acknowledged, I did not cover, and I will confess. This is David uncovering his sin before God and exposing it for exactly what it is. Like that expression, holy, 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 to say here that or that says none is holier than God, the threefold confession here, it signifies that David is confessing until there's nothing left to confess. This is the difference between a half-hearted confession of a person seeking to flee the consequences of sin and the full-hearted confession of the person seeking to flee sin itself. The fullness of David's sin is matched by the fullness of David's confession. And then David points out the Lord forgives, He covers that sin. It's kind of slightly ironic that this whole time David has been trying to cover his own sin, and in the end, it's actually God who covers the sin. But again, this is no surprise. We already know that the Lord forgives. When we keep silent, though, we burden ourselves even more. Proverbs 28:13, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes him will obtain mercy." By our silence about our own sin, we create an anxious heart and an anxious mind, because we're always having to calculate then our next move, just so that we don't accidentally reveal that sin that's hidden. And then that causes even further stress because we always wonder, will there come a day when it's finally revealed? Guess what? There will be before the Lord. I think Spurgeon captures it well. He writes, Under terrors of conscience, men have little rest by night. For the grim thoughts of the day goad them to their chambers and haunt their dreams. Or else they lie awake in a cold sweat of dread. God's hand is very helpful when it uplifts, but it is always it is awful when it presses down. This is the anguish of sin concealed. We do better to bring it to the Lord since it was never really truly concealed anyway. I think of an early episode of The Golden Girls when Sophia is offering counsel to Dorothy about her lingering anger. And Sophia Although she says it about anger, I will adopt it for sin, and she says it this way. Sin is like a piece of shredded wheat. I hear snickering. (laughs) Occasionally you get these sermon illustrations that are either so obscure or so perfect. They come like once or twice a a year, if that. And you guard them and you hold on to them. I've been holding on to this one for years. (laughs) It is that obscure. Sin is like a piece of shredded wheat. (laughs) When it gets caught in your dentures, it causes a sore that begins to fester. And you have to remove the shredded wheat for the sore to heal. Relief from sin comes only when we see sin as, as it is and put forth the effort to remove it. Otherwise, there is anguish in sin concealed. And David shares his own experience of that. Going then from that anguish of sins concealed, I want you to note, third, the abolition of sins' consequences. Oftentimes, a person that is best equipped to give counsel is a person who is counseling from their own experience. That's what David now does here. Based on his own experience, David provides counsel to others. And he directs others to avoid concealing their sin and instead to confess it. He gives the following instructions in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Dr. William Varner notes the extraordinary nature in the change of David's countenance here, who goes from sinning and in silence in verse 3 to all of a sudden singing in verse 7. And the cause of this change is the result of honestly confessing his sin and now having a restored relationship with the Lord. Sin will always have some sort of consequence. Confession doesn't mitigate the discipline that will come as a result of it. But what it does do is remove the ongoing suffering that results from a fractured relationship with God. And if the sin is against others, it removes that as well. In David's case, though, so he's, he's confessing his sins, his sin against Bathsheba and every everybody there. And he does so in 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 12, 13, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his response to Nathan's confrontation. I have sinned against the Lord. There were still consequences for that sin. We see this in Nathan's response to David's confession. When on behalf of the Lord, he says, the Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. And indeed, in the next verse, the child dies. Sin always has consequences. And often, those consequences don't just impact the sinner himself or herself, it impacts others around. We see this in marriage. As a single person, especially as an older one before I got married, I was very content in my ways. I didn't have to think about my sin too much. It wasn't until I was married that I began to recognize how much my sin impacts somebody else. And now that I have kids, I see that even more. In David's case, it forever impacts Bathsheba and Uriah and the child. The confession of the Lord doesn't undo that impact, confession of David to the Lord. But it does remove the eternal condemnation that sin deserves in this case. So David's confession does not change what happened, but it brings about the Lord's deliverance of the sin. In verse 6 of Psalm 32, David pictures this deliverance, and he does so as God's rescue from a great flood. The text reads, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. In ancient Near East literature of the day, floodwaters were a symbol of chaos, and that's what's being depicted here, suggesting that in sin, chaos will reign. And yet, God rescues, ensuring the security of the believer, even though that believer may suffer as a result of the sin still. Such suffering, actually, is God's provision for rescue. It is a calamity that God uses to draw back the wayward sinner to himself. One commentator writes, Adversity is always on occasion for the wise in heart to draw near to the Lord in prayer and to find solace in him. Though the flood described in the text may surround the sinners, we see, it may even destroy what that sinner has, his home, his possessions, maybe his means providing for his family, or maybe even just his lifestyle. But the Lord doesn't allow the sinner himself to perish, Instead, he continues to use those circumstances to direct the sinner back to him, urging repentance and restoration. And the one who returns finds a God described in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The freedom from sin's consequences in those verses It now brings about something very important in verses 8 and 9. Freedom not just from sin's consequences, but freedom from sin itself. We read in those verses, verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I want you to note fourth, the avoidance of sin's control. The avoidance of sin's control. The one who has confessed his or her past sins has a great advantage over future sins. That person has the Lord who is willing to walk alongside any of his followers in order to restrain sin and restrain them from engaging in sin further. The Psalm, psalmist here, it, it switches from David speaking on behalf of himself in the previous verses to now he's, he's speaking from the Lord's perspective. And he's simply reasserting the Lord's promises. Notice those promises in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Look at that verse again. Do you see something critical there? It conveys the Lord's promises. But how many promises? Three. Again, we see three. And once again, we have the highest expression of of God in the form of three promises, which is to instruct, to teach, and to counsel. Psalm 51.13, again, another one of those penitential psalms. It offers further clarification. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The blessing of a restored relationship with the Lord after confessing sins is the Lord's instruction and the Lord's teaching and the Lord's counsel, which are imparted to an individual to keep them from further sin. The next verse shows the willingness of the Lord to employ harsh means to keep a person from sin. Proverbs 26.3 says, a whip for a horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. And now here in Psalm 32, verse 9, we see what that looks like in practice. Desiring to have the horse beside him, we see that the Lord is willing to use a bit and a bridle to keep that horse there. This is a picture of the Lord's relationship with sinners. But even as severe as that picture is, the severest form of the Lord's restraint from sin is still softer the severity of the Lord's discipline when we do sin. For one who has died, it says in Romans 6-7, has been set free from sin. Through Christ, the sinner has been set free from the servitude that sin requires. No longer does a person feel compelled to submit to sin because they have submitted to the one who overcame sin. And in this, the Lord offers himself to keep people from that. I think we should think about it this way. This all powerful God, who has all power to overcome all sin, now offers his aid to people like you and I, who seem to have no power to overcome sin. And he does this through his instruction, his teaching, and his counsel, which come in the form of guidance from his spirit, instructions from his word, and wisdom from godly believers. By the Lord's work, we have the avoidance of sin's control. I want you to note finally, the alleviation of sin's covered. Acting almost as a summary of everything we've just read, David closes this psalm with these two verses Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O oh, righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. These words are a fitting end to all that we've just read through the first nine verses. Verse 10 offers a contrast between the sinner who is willing to repent and the one who is willing to conf- unwilling to repent. Indeed, it says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. We know that to be true because we just saw David, who was unwilling to acknowledge his sin and turn from it in verses 3 and 4. And indeed, many were his sorrows. He suffered mightily. And though it was the Lord's doing, at the Lord's instruction, it was David's fault. David brought it upon himself. He invited the Lord's discipline by not being willing to repent and make restitution for his sins. And the Lord, as both a perfect judge and a just judge, has no choice but to intervene at that point. This is the result of being out of the will of God. The decisions that one makes often creates more problems instead of solving the original problem. But then look at the next part in verse 10. The one who trusts the Lord finds the Lord's love. That's where we began in verse 1. Ultimately, seeing that the one who trusts in the sufficiency of the Lord's forgiveness will find himself or find herself living in the love of the Lord through that forgiveness. And then that brings us to verse 11. As the Lord covers sin, just as he did David's, alleviating the person of a burden to carry that sin, how could one not rejoice then? Think of everything we've just seen in all of Psalm 32. And in spite of the awful nature of sin and the anguish of unconfessed sin, we see a God. We see our God who forgives. Even more, the Lord forgives completely, He forgives thoroughly, and He forgives perfectly. How could you not respond according to verse 11? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Notice a final aspect. It says, Be glad, rejoice, and shout. What do you notice about all those words, aside from the fact that there's three? <coughs> They're commands. Be joyful, be glad. Shout. The joy of forgiveness is not just a privilege, it's a duty. Does the command to rejoice minimize the Lord's forgiveness? Absolutely not. It's just conveying something that we would expect to naturally occur. The expectation is that in perfect forgiveness from the Lord, we will have perfect joy in the Lord. There is great wonder and amazement at the Lord's forgiveness. There is a great wonder at how God forgives it all, and there's great amazement that the Lord forgives it all. The Lord is proficient and perfect in his forgiveness. He not only forgives, but he covers it, and he counts it not against the sinner. But just upon that, the Lord is not content. He also not only offers pardon of past sin, but... He offers protection from future sin. He instructs, he counsels, he teaches so that no person may be enticed by sin again. David gives us an example of himself pointing to the destruction of sin and confessed and at the same time the del- delight of sin confessed. His initial response to his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder against Uriah is no different than Most. The environment in which we live and create makes it easy to hide our sin, to blame it on someone else, or even to minimize it. In fact, our, our deceitful hearts are so content in their sin that many people are more content to minimize, excuse, or even justify their sin. But in light of both the devastation of sin and the grandeur of God's forgiveness, it seems that the wise response is, quick rather than delayed admission. One commentator sums up the account of Psalm 30 through 32 just saying, from this magnificent piece of inspired literature, we conclude that confessing our sin is a vital part of vibrant, victorious Christian living. And so I reiterate, when we have perfect forgiveness from the Lord, we have perfect joy in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father God We proclaim frequently as we do now That you are a great and mighty God You're a gracious God, merciful God Who forgives our sins and covers our iniquities, Lord And yet though we know that to be true Sometimes, Lord We don't understand the significance of what that was Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for David and his example that we have, knowing both the severity of sin so we can avoid it, but also knowing the consequence of confessing our sin to you and knowing that we can come to you and find it covered, just as he did, Lord. Father, help us to draw nearer to you in that, Lord. We give you great thanks for what you've done. For that ongoing forgiveness and that ongoing protection lord and so father may we come to you wholeheartedly fully and thoroughly knowing that we need you completely and thoroughly it is in your holy and precious name we pray amen